This morning I want to speak to you on a house of prayer. If you'd open your Bibles or on your devices to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 16. Verses 12 through 16. 12 through 16. So I'll read it to you. Uh, I'm reading this out of the New Living Translation. Beginning in verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out all of the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those that were selling doves. And he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers and thieves. Verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles, and they heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David! Praise God for the Son of David! But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes, yes. Haven't you read the scriptures? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. This is an incredible story in the life of Jesus, one that you're not totally unfamiliar with. What you may or may not know is that this story is actually shows us a progression, a natural and scriptural progression of what God wants to tell us about his house. His house in that time, he was speaking of the temple itself, but he was really describing more. He was speaking about what he wanted his people to be. He, today, our application is for us as a church body, but also for us individually. Paul the Apostle said, you are the house of God. You as an individual, you are the house of God. Why? Because today the Holy Spirit doesn't live in buildings built with men's hands, but the Holy Spirit resides in you. You are the house of God. But also collectively, Peter reminds us that we are being built into a spiritual house. We are living stones, constructed, put together, and we become the house of God. So what might Jesus be saying to us today from Matthew chapter 21 about what kind of house we ought to be? And obviously, I think you'll begin to see these themes. There are four of them, and I want you to notice how they connect to one another. There are four different houses that are emphasized in Matthew 21 that we can embrace, that we can learn, and we can commit to today. So let's start with the first one that is quite obvious, and it's simply a house of purity. Jesus calls his house to be a house of purity. Now, uh, I just want to remind you, maybe some of you are confused by this, because you might think, now wait a minute, when is this happening in the life of Jesus? The actual Matthew 21, this is at the end of Jesus' ministry. This is right following his triumphant return. This is a passage that a lot of times is taught on during the Easter season, Right? But, but I'm talking about it now, and you'll understand why. So after he comes into the city, he immediately goes to the temple to pray. And when he goes, what does he find? 
All kinds of crazy stuff going on, right? It angers him, and he demonstrates his commitment to purity and integrity and, 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 and a godly lifestyle by throwing out all the, the, the uh, money changers, etc. Did you know that this is the second time this happened? Did you know it actually happened two times in the life of the ministry of Jesus? The first one was in the book of John three years before, right after his very first ministry miracle that was done in Cana of Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. Right following that, Jesus went into the temple to pray. And when he went in, it's almost repetitious for this, from this scripture in Matthew 21. It says he found money changers, and he found them selling stuff, and he found them uh, doing all kind of corrupt business deals in his house, in the temple courts. And it angered him, and he actually took out a whip and started kicking over tables. and took a, that, Jesus got hot. And that was at the beginning of his ministry. Now, may I suggest to you that the intent of the what is called the cleansing of the temple, many times we call it, the intent, in my view, was Jesus was not only doing something for that day, he was setting a clear, sending a clear message to all who would ever follow him that purity, holiness, godliness, integrity is of utmost importance. And there's certain things that cross the line and he will not allow and he will not approve. So let's look at this passage and let me break it down a little bit more by showing you an illustration, if I may. And I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence, but that's a replica of the temple that would have been there during Jesus's days. It was simply Solomon's temple remodeled and rebuilt and redesigned a little bit uh, fancier, a little bit greater. And you may notice that there, on the walls of the temple and within the temple structure, there are different sections, okay? So you have uh, that largest open area there is, called, is the outer court, or is actually referred to as the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was a place where if you were a Gentile, you weren't a Jew by birth, you could not go into the holier places. You are not allowed to go in deeper into the house of God where they believe that God actually dwelt there. You couldn't get that close to God. You were kept on the outskirts as a Gentile. So that was the court of the Gentiles. And then there was another court, one more step inward. is called the court of women. So ladies, y'all got a little bit better off than, than the Gentiles. You got a little bit closer into God by having a court there. But if you were a male or you were a priest, you got to go farther in and deeper into the temple. So what's the point? So Jesus is trying to explain, first of all, what's going on is all of these animals and all of this stuff is going on out here in this outer court. That's where all the marketplace activity was going on. So what were they doing? They were, first of all, they were selling animals. Because during feast times... Jews were required to come into Jerusalem to the temple, not just worship in their own villages, but actually come to Jerusalem to the temple, and they were to join the festival. When they did that, they were required to purchase and to bring uh, a sacrificial animals, whether it be a dove or a pigeon or whether it be a goat or a sheep or, or a cow, depending on the festival. And guess what? It couldn't just be any sheep. It had to be animals without blemish, without defect. You know, USDA prime. 
You know, I mean, it had to be inspected and approved. And so what many of those who would come in from long distance was to do, that's a hassle to have to bring your sheep or your goat in all the way from long ways away. What would they do? They'd say, for a matter of convenience, well, we'll just buy it there. Because these entrepreneurs had made a deal with the religious leaders. They had made a deal that they would be able to sell, quote, approved animals, unquote, in the outer court. In addition to that little bit of merchandising that was going on, there was also money changing. You say, well, why is money changing important? Because there was two different conflicting currencies. The common currency of that day was the Roman coin or Roman currency. But when you gave your offering at the temple, you weren't to give the Roman coin. You had to give a special Jewish coin. And so what you would do is take your Roman currency and you'd have to go to a money exchanger and you exchange that for the Jewish coin. It's kind of like if you were traveling out of the country and you take your U.S. dollars going into Germany, you would have to go to a money exchange place and you would sell your dollars for euros because euros is the currency that you would have to use in many countries in Europe, right? How many of you know whenever you exchange that money, you lose a little bit of money? There's some fees that have actually been taken out of your money as you make that exchange. I guarantee you, these fees were not small. They were exorbitant. In fact, the money changers were ripping off the Jews who came there to worship. So you had all of this merchandising, all this business activity that was going on in the outer courts. So you get the picture, Jesus shows up. He comes to pray. And he sees all of this stuff going on. It was during the Passover feast. So it was craziness in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus comes into the temple to pray. And what does he see? He sees all this craziness going on. And he came across the merchants. He came across the money changers. And remember, they were there by permission of the religious leaders. And by the way, I'm certain that they were getting their cut. How many of y'all live enough to find out everybody gets a cut? So I guarantee you, the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders of the temple, they were, they were getting a little pass-through money on all of that. All right. So he comes in, he sees all this, and, and he was highly disturbed. Now you might say, well, this just seems fair. They're offering a fair service to the people. I mean, it's a need. These vendors are just providing a much-needed service. But what you have to remember is that there was gouging, corruption, taking advantage of the poor that was going on. Uh, there was, this was a serious problem. Rather than just changing the money at the same normal rate, they would charge exorbitant uh, wages in order to do that. This disturbed Jesus. So maybe the question comes to your mind, why was Jesus so upset? Why was he angry? May I suggest to you that there are a number of reasons that you could give for why this so disturbed Jesus. First of all, remember, this isn't the first time he's cleansed the temple. So if there's one thing he's angry about, it's like, haven't I already done this this was just three years ago I thought we did this. I thought we got this all straight. But here he is again having to do the same thing again. You know, when your child disobeys you, it's not good. But it's really bad if they keep on doing the same thing over and over and over again. Can someone say amen? Jesus was disturbed that they hadn't heard him the first time. He's also indignant because why? Because of the oppression that is going on. Minorities, the marginalized, the poor, women, 
Gentiles are being mistreated in this process. It was clearly oppressive. It was clearly marginalization. And when God's people are being oppressed, God's heart is moved. When the people of God were being mistreated in Egypt, God sent a deliverer. When God's people are being marginalized, regardless of your color, regardless of your income, God's upset about that. He was so disturbed, his son Jesus expressed his anger. So he, became, he was angry because of the oppression of the, uh, what was going on there in the temple. I believe he was also angry because of the religious leaders. Here were people that were supposed to set an example. Here were people that were supposed to be, look, you know, we're closest to God. Do what we do. But here these religious leaders and teachers had totally forgotten God's real character. They forgot the true character of God, and they were so wrapped up in the legalities of the law, they were so puffed up by their own pursuit of power and position, that they were just worshiping the structure. They were worshiping the rules, and they were all about just being legalistic and formalistic and maintaining control. Listen, when leaders act like that, particularly spiritual leaders, what are supposed to be spiritual leaders, let me tell you something, Jesus isn't happy. And you say, well, I'm, man, I'm glad that that's not happening today. I wish it were. I wonder if Jesus showed up, walked through many of our organizations, churches, ministry organizations today. I wonder how much cleaning would have to be done. Jesus was indignant. He was reflecting the heart of his father. He was reflecting the righteous indignation of his father when he did this. He was also disturbed by the corruption, the corruption, the malfeasance, the robbery. Stealing from people is actually what it was all about. So this was a serious deal. There's also discrimination going on. Jesus, I mean, I mean, God had told us in the Old Testament, Isaiah 56, 7, he said, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations, all the peoples. In other words, this house is not to be exclusive. This isn't just about one sect of people. The heart of God has always been for the whole world, not just one nation. Yes, he loves Israel. Yes, he loves the Jewish people, but he has a heart for everyone. And so the structures and the rules of the temple were prejudiced and discriminated against anyone that wasn't Jewish. That upset Jesus. He's also upset by discrimination today. He's upset by oppression today. He's upset when we, miss, when we abuse people, when we take advantage of the poor. His anger is stirred up by these kinds of things because God desires purity today. Purity has to do with our heart. Purity has to do with our attitudes. Purity has to do with our actions and our behavior. And I ask you the question today, are you a house of purity? I think one of the things that was going on here is these trivial things, and I put it here on the screen for you. I noted that trivial things have terrible power to disrupt what is important. I'm sure that the leaders of the temple thought, oh, that's no big deal. Let the merchants do that. Oh, big deal. Oh, we'll make a concession here. We'll do this. Sometimes the most trivial things are the most important and are are offensive because they are disrupting what is important to God. What's always important to God is relationship. 
What's always important to God is that nothing hinder our worship and our relationship with Him. It incites the anger of God, in fact, and should be abandoned immediately. God wants purity. He was saying in cleansing the temple twice, by the way, do you think that that provides an emphasis? The beginning of his ministry, the end of his ministry. His three-year ministry was bookended by cleansing the temple twice. As if to suggest what? This is no big deal. I mean, this is a big deal. There's nothing to joke about. This is a big deal. I want my people, I want my house to be clean. I want it to be righteous. So God is wanting to remind us by this story that moral purity is important. Some of you have possibly been playing around with sinful tendencies. Some of you have been just just yielding easily to temptation. Some of you even today, you may need to repent for some of the, the stuff that is simply offensive to Jesus, that if he were here in your life today, he'd be knocking over some tables in your life. If he were in many of our churches, is there something that he would be indignant about and he would be upset about? Some of you are playing around with pornography and you need to repent. Some of you are are speaking ugly, ugliness about one another. Your communication doesn't glorify God. You're using words and saying mean things. Some of you have had bitterness and resentment stuck in your heart for a long time. Broken relationships. Now you live and walk in anger and in wrath and in bad attitudes. That's not pleasing to God. He wants to clean our temple. Someone say amen. He wants to clean up his church. How do we expect revival to come if we don't have a sense of moral compass and moral purity? We become so conditioned by what seems to be acceptable in our culture and society today that we think it's okay for us. Don't worry about everybody else. You take care of yourself. You need to look and ask Holy Spirit to reveal to you. I'll tell you, during this prayer time, we've been praying all this week, God will clean up our clutter. He'd open up some of those closets that you had locked for a long time. You'd allow God to clean it up and you'll repent, get right with God. Listen, repentance is not just saying a namby-pamby, I'm sorry, Lord. Repentance is a heart to change. You need to confess it as sin, acknowledge that what God's word is right, and at the heart level, say, I repent. That means I admit it, I'm turning from it, I'm going to walk a new way. Some of us need to restore repentance in our life. It should be a house of purity. Did everybody get that message clear enough? And I won't notice the progression from a house of purity. I want you to notice immediately what happens. It goes from a house of purity to Jesus' emphasis that it would be a house of prayer. He said, I didn't set up this house to be a ha- all this kind of craziness. I, that was never my purpose in doing this. He said, instead, I've always said my house should be what? A house of prayer. A prayer for all, house of prayer for all nations. Now the Bible is pretty clear. I don't have to tell you how important prayer is. But as we're visiting this, I think Jesus is making a priority of it, isn't it? He's saying, if if you belong to me, prayer needs to be an emphasis. If you're a part of my family, if you're part of my house, prayer needs to be a priority and a value. Sometimes we get ourselves all wrapped around prayer and we confuse it. We get in the weeds. We make it so difficult. Prayer is simply communication with God. It's simply, and there's all different kinds of prayer. But God wants us to be consistent in prayer. 
Some of you are stuck without a prayerful life because you're still living in the drudgery of prayer and you need to get delivered from the drudgery of prayer and move into the delight of prayer. Prayer is communicating with God. It might be the prayer of thanksgiving. It might be a confession. It might be a prayer of petition, asking for something. It may be intercession and praying for our nation. I think it needs it. Praying for the world. I think it needs it. Praying for our community. I know it needs it. So God's looking for people who will say, Lord, I want to be a part of a house of prayer where it's not incidental, where it's not accidental, where it's not just something that happens 21 days a year, but it is a house of prayer. The Bible makes it clear that prayer is important. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, that we know so well, when the Father says this, If my people, whose people? If my people who are called by my name will, what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn. Everybody say turn. Turn, that's the purity part. Turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. We want revival. We have to begin as a house of purity. And then we have to move from being a house of purity to becoming a house of prayer. If my people will do this, God promises a healing for our land. Jesus modeled prayer all through his life and ministry for three years. He went from ministry to the prayer mountain. He went from the prayer mountain to do a miracle. He went from the miracle back off to have another prayer retreat. His whole life was the rhythm of prayer, seeking the Father, communing with the Father, and then doing the Father's will. Many of us are trying to do the Father's will. Being engaged in ministry. Doing what God's put before us to do. But we're leaving out the prayer part. We have to be a house of prayer. Mark chapter 14. The end of Jesus' life. He's at the garden of Gethsemane. And he brings his disciples with him to pray with him. And Jesus is praying. When he looks up, he looks over there. And what's going on with Peter and his rest of the disciples? Were they praying really hard? Were they shouting in prayer? Were they really intense interceding? No, they were sleeping. So here's Jesus, intense in prayer, struggling with the will of God, his Father, for his life. And he's just asked his disciples, come and join him for prayer. He looks at the weather there, they're sleeping. That's a picture of the church today. Jesus today is interceding on our behalf. Today in heaven, he's praying for you right now. He's praying and we're sleeping. Because it's a whole lot easier to sleep than it is to pray. Because it's a whole lot easier to stay under that nice warm comforter than it is to get up early and to pray and to seek God. Come on, someone say amen. amen. Jesus said, can't you just wait with me in prayer for an hour? Is that too much to ask? Look, the spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak, folks. Acts chapter 4 and verse 23 speaks clearly of how the early church practiced prayer upon uh, Peter and, and uh, Peter and John's release from getting in trouble for doing a miracle. After they had been arrested, they came back to the early church, told them what had happened immediately. I love this. They didn't immediately go and say, well, I think I'll post that on Facebook. No, it says, in fact, say, well, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. And after they prayed, this is the church together, the early church. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Oh, we need some shaking. Come on. And it only happens as people understand the, the practice 
and the discipline of prayer. Acts chapter 12, a similar thing happened. Peter, the leader of the early church there, was arrested, put in jail. And King Herod Agrippa put him in the deepest, darkest jungle. jungles. And I love the passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 12, verse 5. It says, it says they arrested Peter, but the church earnestly prayed for him. You know, whatever problem you face, if you can just, if you can just match it with earnest prayer, and preferably the prayer of others. I'm telling you, there's no prison God won't break you out of. I promise you there's no problem that God won't release you from because we need to become like the early church and literally be a house of prayer. Amen? Oh, I could give you so many examples of this, but I'll just remind you of this and the role that it's played even just in the history of this, short history of this young church. Six and a half years ago, when we planning, Carrie and I had been considering praying about whether or not to plant this church. God spoke to us to do it. I consulted a few people. They said, I don't know. I don't know whether you ought to do that. I'm not sure God's in that. Why? You you know, maybe you haven't checked in lately, Bobby, but you're 58 years old. Not sure that God could bless something like that. So we prayed and God said, do it. A little bit later on, we began to look for a place to meet. We met on Saturday nights for a couple of years and the whole time we're looking for a place. Every single place in the territory that God had given us an assignment said, no, we will not lease to churches. We will not rent to churches. There wasn't one spot available. We knocked on doors. We visited. We talked to every agent we could. We did everything for, for, uh, for 18 months looking for a place to meet. The owners of this building and this, uh, this professional center, we called, talked to the agent, talked to the owners. No, we refuse. We won't even talk to you. You're a church. Won't do it. Four separate meetings. No, we told you before, we will not lease to a church. The reasons are unimportant for the moment. Will not do it. So what do we do? So, well, we, I said to our team, we just got to keep praying. And we got to pray. God's got something for us. Keep praying. Carrie and I kept driving by here. We lived fairly close. We drove by this building, and Carrie kept saying, maybe it's just me, but I just think, I just see it's meeting there. I'm like, me of great faith, honey, we've checked with the owners. Let's don't go there again. Look, we've had four rejects. Do we need to go through this again? She said, I I don't know. I don't know. I just see it's there. Right, Johnny? We just kept it. And, and, And you know what God did? Turn the heart of one of the managing partners came back from a trip to Israel, called us up and said, Matt, maybe we should talk. Talked, made a deal, changed their policy, allowed us to rent this first building. I, I want you to know this church has been birthed in prayer. On the floor, on the concrete floor, under where you are seated right now, when we finally were able to sign a contract to lease this space, There were prayers prayed in this room, totally unfinished. And on this floor, there are prayers written with Sharpies on the concrete. Scriptures written under your feet right now in prayer. God gave it to us. And he gave us every dime to do the improvements and kept us out of debt. Not only that, but then fast forward to now. People said two years ago, there's no way a church your size will ever be able to uh, to be able to raise the money and get them more. There's just no way. Y'all don't even need to try. People of the city said, don't even try to put in a conditional use permit. It'll never get approval from the commission or the city council. If we had listened to people instead of God, we would have never taken bold steps forward. 
every step of the way. We knew it was going to take a God thing. Do you know how many miracles God turned and did in order to open up the doors that this building and this property could be ours? And today, it's only because of God's faithfulness, but God's people paid the price in prayer. Someone say amen. Amen. Jesus said it should be a house of purity. Then he clearly stated it should also be a house of prayer. But then he also, I want you to see this, now the progression. House of purity, then a house of prayer, then a house of power. By the way, the sequencing is important. Don't mix these up. Sequencing starts with a house of purity. Only a house of purity will become a house of prayer in the right way. And only a house of prayer and purity will ever embrace God's power. Notice what happened. Right there, almost like it's just... Without a pause in the text, in the narrative, it simply says this. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. He just got through saying it's going to be a house of prayer. The blind and the lame showed up. They've been there all along. They've been oppressed. They've been kept at, held down. Those with need. The Bible says that the leading priests priests and teachers of the law saw the miracles that Jesus did when he healed the blind and the lame. They got upset. Can you imagine that? Religious people getting upset at people's needs being met. It's amazing. Religious people always get upset when God's power gets demonstrated. Show them a miracle, they're like, oh, I don't know about that. Listen, I don't care what your title is. I don't care what your religion is. I don't care what denomination you're a part of. But respect the power of God. Don't quench the work of the Spirit. Don't despise prophecy. Don't despise the work of the Spirit when He's working in our midst. Because the church today needs to be a house of power. A house of power where the Spirit of God is working in the lives of the people. Where there is a house of prayer, a house of power will follow. Oh, God wants to manifest His power in your life, in your house. In my house, in this house, God wants to do that. Why? It's biblical. That's why Mark chapter 16 tells us very clearly, Jesus said to us, go into the whole world and preach the gospel. Later on it says, and these signs, everybody say signs. Signs will accompany those that believe. And then it lists all these signs. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll lay hands on the sick. They'll recover. goes on listing all these crazy miracles. And then it says, and the Lord did it. The Lord confirmed the gospel with signs and wonders. You don't think people need a miracle today? People are hungry to see God's power today. That's why Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 4 and 5, he's talking about his ministry. He said, well, my message, my messages, they weren't all that. He said they weren't pre- it wasn't with wise words, persuasive words. That wasn't the key to my effectiveness. But instead he said, but they were with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He understood what was making the difference. It was proclamation. We'll never, we'll never delete proclamation. But it was proclamation and add demonstration. If you have proclamation and you add demonstration, you'll get transformation. And we need transformation today. Amen? It's a house of prayer. God wants this to be a house of prayer. Oh, I could tell you so many miracles, but my time's up. I'm going to close with the last in the progression. House of purity to a house of prayer to a house of power. And finally, next thing you know, praise erupts. Interesting enough, how? Not from the scribes. Not from the Pharisees. From the kids. The 
children who are in the outer court watching all this. I mean, I, I started thinking about this last night late. I don't know why I was thinking about this. I thought, isn't it a little strange that Jesus is being so violent? I mean, this was a violent deal. Going there, kicking people, kicking stuff over. In other words, kids were in there. Kids were observing. And then people started getting heat. And then what happened? The children started saying, Praise be to the David, the son of David. They started singing, Jesus loves me. This I know. Shh. Praise to the son of David. Would someone shut those kids up? We're trying to have church. Look how Jesus responded. He said, don't mess with them. He said, it's in the scriptures. It's in the scriptures. The children, the infants, even infants. So you pregnant mamas, listen to me. Even infants will praise. Will praise me. Listen. A house of praise. Jesus was making it really clear when he ended the story with this part. That it all needs to wrap up with praise to God. It all needs to result in giving worship and praise to God. When God works miracles, we don't take credit. When something remarkable happens, we don't say, well, I, was, you know, I did really good on that. Oh, we need to simply, don't leave it up to your kids. Let's adults join right on in. Let's all of us say, let's just result in praise to God. Let's really praise Him. Because that's the end of the story. So many scriptures that establish praise. Psalm 8.2 says, Through the praise of the children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. Some of you are being attacked. Some of you don't know how to handle the attack. Look right here. Try praising more. As a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Psalm 71.8, My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your glory all day long. The psalmist says, Your praise will continually be in my mouth. Josh read this morning, Psalm 103, Bless the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Some of you need to talk your soul into praising. Because a house of purity, then a house of prayer, will result in a house of power that ends up being a house of praise. Would you stand to your feet with me? I hope today God has been speaking to you. Urging you to apply his word. So I want to pray for you as the ministry teams come forward. They'll be available here at the altar for ministry to anybody who wants to respond. Either respond maybe to this message with some decision for Christ. Or maybe it's prayer for some other need in your life. That's why we're here for prayer. I'm going to pray for you and then Josh is going to declare a blessing over you and then you'll be dismissed. Lord, um, many of us need to repent where we're impure. Some of us need to repent for the thoughts that we've allowed to be seated in our minds. We need to repent for the ugliness that we've shown towards others. Whatever, Holy Spirit, you want to speak to us about, I just pray we'd have ears to hear and, Lord, hearts to repent. 
Lord, we ask that you would make us individually and corporately a pure house of integrity. And then, Lord, birth a prayer movement. Make us a house of prayer. Replace the impurity with prayer purity. And, Lord, then we'll expect the miracles and the revival and the visitation. And it all ends up bringing more praise to you. So, Lord, move on our hearts. Deal with us deeply. We give you our attention today as we begin this new year. In Jesus' name we pray. Josh is going to speak a blessing, and then you're dismissed or come for prayer.